Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Every solopreneur recognizes that feeling of exhaustion. There are limited hours in the day and only one of you to go around. You want to scale your income, but Hermione just won't let you borrow her time travel necklace. If you are a creative, a designer, maker, retailer, or educator, the Academy for Virtual Teaching invites you to learn how online workshops and educational videos can bring in passive income, create a loyal community of fans who are willing to support you with their dollars. We invite you to join us for a two-week free trial at a4vt.com. That's A, the number four, vt.com. Explore our free courses, say hello to a supportive community of virtual teachers, check out our equipment reviews, or attend a live seminar with experts in our industry. You can find the Academy for Virtual Teaching at a4vt.com. Thank you so much, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 221 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about creating a craft kit and workshop business with my guest, Morgan Spenla. Morgan is the founder and CEO of Crafter and the Crafter's Box. Crafter.com is an online home for makers, offering educational videos, kits, patterns, and community. The Crafter's Box is a monthly subscription, exploring new crafting mediums such as printmaking, fiber arts, woodworking, even a series of workshops in basket weaving. Today, Crafter supports artisans full circle by partnering with small business suppliers, legacy manufacturers, and accomplished teachers to bring curation and quality to makers worldwide. Morgan Spenla, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Abby. Yeah, thank you for being here. I've admired the Crafters Box for several years now, and I think it's really a beautiful business, and I'm very excited to hear more about how it came to be and all the steps along the way. Um, Before we do that, though, let's just kind of go back a little while, because I know you didn't start out your career in craft. When you were growing up, were you crafty? Did you enjoy making things, or did that come to you kind of a little bit later in life? You know, really early, I... I probably, like every kid, found a lot of um, joy and comfort in crafting. And my mom was super crafty, and um, you know, she was our she was our uh, campfire girl, kind of like Girl Scouts leader. And she ran Life Lab at my school, and she was always working with her hands, making you know beautiful things, whether it was in the soil or cooking or with crafts. And I think through that observation, I realized just what a um, what a uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just a like thoughtful and you know nourishing area crafting could be for you. And that's that's where it really became a hobby for me. Is as I was growing up, I leaned on crafting as a like a creative escape, and um, it just grew from there. 
Okay, great. So you were crafty. And then um, when you went to college, what did you sort of have in mind for yourself as a career? Oh, yeah. So um, definitely nothing in the crafting world, for sure. Okay. Um, it was that's like the, you know, the separation of like, uh, like hobby and, you know, and, and business or hobby and, and career. Um, but I, I went to school for, uh, for business. I ended up getting a degree from USC, um, an interdisciplinary degree through their philosophy and their business school in, uh, business, uh, leadership and ethics. Um, and I was very sure from actually a very young age, I didn't know this, that I wanted to go into business and I wanted to, um, uh, when I was younger, I wanted to, you know, work for a, one of the, like a massive corporation. And as I grew up, um, and I went into school, I wanted to really do my own thing and eventually start and run my own business as I had seen, you know, parents and peers and, you know, friends, parents and so forth do. Um, so that's what I went into school to pursue. And were you like entrepreneurial? Were you as a kid? Were you one of those people who like, you know, made things and sell the, sold them or tried to like start a business in high school and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, a little, maybe not on the entrepreneurial side. I always had a job from, I mean, I remember from the various, from the moment I think that my town in Northern California allowed, um, or maybe it's a state law, but I think it was 14. You could have a job. And I was probably on my 14th birthday. I walked down to the local pizzeria and applied and had a job every Sunday morning, um, making pizzas. And just, I kept that. I always had that work ethic about me where I always had something going on, on the, you know, on the, the, uh, keeping busy side and making money side. And, you know, I always had an internship every semester of college. And that to this day is the advice that I give any incoming freshman ready to go to school of, you know, don't, don't be overly busy, but go try different things in a safe space, like an internship where you can walk away and there's no harm done. Um, I quickly realized the types of companies I did and didn't want to work for the industries. I was willing to spend time in and the industries that were not good matches. Um, but having something going on on the employment side was instilled from a very, very young age. And I'm sure I did all the lemonade stands and so forth as well. Um, on the entrepreneur side, I definitely experimented with a few businesses when I was younger before really landing in what is, you know, my now um, business home, I guess you could say. Yeah. And so those internships in college, they sounded really um, important. And you were saying that it helped you to understand what you did and didn't want to do. Can you share some of the sort of insights that you gained from that? Like what kinds of industries um, were, you know, were interesting after those experiences? And what kinds were you like, mm, not for me? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, a couple of the internships, most of them lived in the, in the business world. So I interned for, I was very interested in investment banking. Um, and for a, a semester, I worked for a hedge fund advisor who had me, you know, um, mark trending, um, stock charts. And I very quickly learned he, his office was on Rodeo drive in Los Angeles. And so the clientele, the, I mean, it was, it was intriguing. It was great for people watching. I learned so much on the stock market side. I actually um, 
uh, played around in the stock market quite a bit in college. And, and when I finally launched Crafter, I was able to use a little bit of what I had learned in investing to, to self-fund the business from the get-go with like, a, I'm talking like a little tiny, tiny nest egg that, you know, allowed me to build the website or something like that. But it felt, it felt very empowering to know that, um, that I had learned this skill. I didn't want to become an investment banker, but I had learned this skill that I would carry, you know, with me or just an interest, I suppose, in this area um, that I got to continue to take advantage of um, for years to come. But back in college, you know, it was, you know, learning self-discipline, like um, when the market's open, you know, you're at your desk. And um, when you're, there's certain professional etiquette that is learned in an investment banking setting. Um, I also worked for, I worked for a magazine for a little bit. That was really interesting on the editorial and business side. Um, I worked for a real estate developer to learn more about um, real estate investing. I just, I did a whole gamut of very uh, sort of related, but, but different types of internships that you know, allowed to have allowed me to have a lot of different bosses and colleagues and and just, you know, and and learn and absorb and be the sponge that you should be when you're 18 years old and trying to figure out, you know, what you want to do. Yeah, that's great. Because one of the questions I had at that age, or even coming out of college was, what do grownups do at work? Like I had no idea, you know, and I became a teacher mostly because I knew about that. But I think it's so valuable. That sounds great to have like understood all different aspects of what grownups do at work before making your own decisions. So what kind of um, of after college, what kind of um, career did you have before um, founding Crafter? Yeah, so I, um, I was, uh, I applied to all different kinds of jobs in the corporate world, and I ended up landing at a consulting firm. Um, and I really heavily pursued this job and was super excited to have um, to have been offered a position. Um, it was a consulting firm that worked with a variety of different um, different large scale enterprise size corporations. And to me, what was so intriguing about that is this opportunity to not just work for one uh, one business or company, but to be inserted in these different environments and to learn from, um, um, you know, about the different organization, organizational structures and leadership and, um, you know, the everyday tasks of these different types of companies. So what the consulting firm did is we, um, we implemented uh, software. We there's a large um, uh, enterpri- enterprise resource planning software tool called SAP. And without making that super boring, it essentially is the software spine that runs an entire company from inventory management to general ledger. And um, by getting to do that, I was on the training and change management side. So I am by no means a developer or in IT or that's not, that's not my expertise. But I learned how to work with people. I learned how to introduce something that was going to drastically change the way that they did their everyday processes, um, how to manage that change, how to market. And eventually what came out of that was this joy of the marketing side of um, of uh, showing a new feature and showing the benefits of it and 
realizing how that that could potentially change the way someone did their everyday job or, you know, beyond that. Um, so I did that for a few years. It, I, it, it had me traveling quite a bit for the first few years out of college. I was actually, I I got married to my husband, um, the month after I graduated college, he was in the military and he was deployed to Japan two weeks later. And so this was a wonderful distraction. Like I lived for three months on the East coast and then I was transferred to, um, a big project in San Diego. And that's actually how I landed in San Diego and started to develop, you know, roots in San Diego. And it certainly didn't hurt that when my husband came back from his deployment in Japan, he was also stationed in San Diego and that's where we, um, you know, started life. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Um, good experience to have when you're young and you can, then you can do that sort of thing. Um, okay. So, uh, were you, you know, turning to creativity in your, um, you know, extra hours after work at that point, or was making things sort of not part of your story at that point in your life? Yes. So I think that's where I felt the value of creativity the most. So I was in the trenches of a very technically oriented job and using absolutely no, I shouldn't say zero creativity, but very little creativity in my day-to-day job. Um, it was a great right out of school job. It taught me a lot. I landed really well in terms of like just, you know, exactly what I was, you know, thought I was looking for post-college, but I would use all of the extra side hours to get my brain out of that and into something that was much more tactile and involved, you know, the other side of my brain. And so that's where creativity really flourished for me. I loved at the time, my husband and I had just purchased this little 100 year old, it's 85 year old, um, Spanish bungalow, historic home in the heart of this adorable little neighborhood in San Diego that needed to be totally gutted, if not like, you know, torn down to like the few you know, structurally awesome walls that made it this sweet Spanish bungalow because it hadn't been um, touched in in decades and decades and decades. Um, so uh, that became my creative project. We rebuilt the whole thing from the inside out together. Um, he has a background in construction and architecture, and I, you know, did all the the drawings for it, and we and chose all the and that was my creative outlet at the time, and that was when blogging was really kind of just. Um, becoming a thing and I documented and the process of it. And I learned a lot about, you know, they weren't certainly weren't called influencers back then. Um, but I learned a lot about the industry of, you know, putting creative projects online and w- what went into that. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't realize yeah. there was a craft blog, not a craft blog, but a home decor, home renovation, I guess, blog that predated um, Crafter. What do you, do you know? Do you feel comfortable telling us what it was called? It was, uh, it was called Pepper Design Blog. And um, at this point in time, it's 15 years old, and it hasn't been touched in probably 10 years. Um, but it was it was such a joyous outlet for me at the time. And, um, I, you know, I really, really loved talking about home renovation and why we were choosing. It was a historical home. So we were, you know, we were trying to make historically accurate 
um, updates for it. And, you know, we were learning as we went for sure. Um, then as I had, when I had my first daughter, I, you know, it kind of became a semi parenting blog and it was a way for my family and friends to just see what was going on. We weren't living in either of our hometowns. Um, so it was a great way to just share what we were doing and, you know, how I was preparing for my daughter's first birthday and making all the, you know, handmade uh, party hats and, and food and, and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, um, that's I would great. Say, <laughs> that was a, that was an early, um, an early, you know, uh, effort in online creativity. Yeah, no, but that's great because you learn so much about like what you enjoy doing about photography, about what resonates with people, about writing online and building a community online. And, you know, those early days of bloggings back, of blogging back in like the mid 2000, like 2007, eight, whatever, around that time, you know, it was a smaller community that it was before social media. And so you could really like, um, build a community just through writing on a blog. You really could. And it was a very warm community. I mean, everybody was so supportive of each other. Um, there was, yeah, you just got, you just got really thoughtful, kind feedback from people. It was was a different world from probably blogging today. Maybe I don't blog anymore, but, um, I really enjoyed, you know, telling those stories and sharing my fun ideas and then, and then hearing from the community, that online blogging community that, you know, was building up around me, um, what people thought was really fun and, and helping people one-on-one with this, making the same handmade felted owl costume. Right. My daughter the year before. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really, it was fun. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Lyric Kennard from the Academy for Virtual Teaching. My name is Lyric Montgomery Kennard, and I am with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And what is the Academy for Virtual Teaching? We are the most amazing community of business people who use online education as a vital part of our business or as just an add-on. It's pretty amazing what online workshops or short educational videos can do to add passive income, to build an amazing community of fans who adore you. It's, it's really, virtual teaching is here to stay. We've been through a pandemic and People know how virtual teaching works now, so they are all over it. And at the Academy, we are helping teachers to build professional courses, to learn the technology, to understand the equipment and how to use it and how to better communicate and educate their people. That's great. And is this for just quilters or just knitters or can it really be for any kind of craft business? Anybody who uses their hands to make things and loves it so much that they just have to share with people that they want to teach what they do can learn what we do. We talk all about any kind of teaching that is hands-on, how to film it, how to share it, how to edit your own film. Um, It's a pretty amazing community of professional development and online education. Again, available to anybody who teaches hands-on crafts. Yeah, and I think it's great because figuring out the technology for this and how to edit and even just how to organize a course, it can be pretty challenging on your own. 
It can be. And we have everything from full overviews to equipment reviews to a masterclass that holds your hand through every step of the way. People are often so surprised at how much easier it is to film and edit your own online classes than you would think. Yeah, that's great. Okay, Lyric, thank you for telling us about this. And how can people get more information and sign up? We would love you to join us. We have a two-week free trial period at A4VT. That's A, the number four, VT.com, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lyric. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now back to my conversation with Morgan. What led you to decide to, to, to leave the corporate world and to venture out on your own and especially to start a craft kit company? Because that's a special kind of company. And, and the Crafters Box is not just a kit company. As we said earlier, it's many different things. But talk about that transition where you sort of had the first seed of the idea and, and leading up to actually like leaving your corporate job and, and deciding to do this as a job. Yeah. Um, so within that span of time, I, um, I had actually been reassigned to a consulting project in Texas and I decided to leave the company to, to, so that I wouldn't have to start traveling to Texas, um, five days a week. And I ended up working as the director of marketing for an engineering, engineering company up in the Bay area, um, kind of on the outskirts of Silicon Valley at the time. And, um, I, I became a, um, much more, you know, uh, uh, experienced marketer in marketing these really cool motors and drives that ultimately were in, you know, SpaceX was one of our customers and Google self-driving cars and also everyday objects like printers and whatnot. Um, but what I found is that while I loved the marketing side of it, I, this was when, you know, paid ads and Google AdWords and whatnot were, were not readily used and everybody was just learning how to use them and so forth. And I just dove, you know, head in into all the things and built trade show booths and, and whatever the company needed on the marketing side, uh, training, all the all videos, whatever they needed. And I realized that, um, I just, I had no passion for the widget that I was helping to sell. Um, but if I could apply what I had learned through the past, you know, 10 years in this space, in the marketing space, to something that I was truly passionate about, that was exciting. So when, um, and actually my, my husband is a much more adventurous uh, individual than I, and he, he was an architect by trade, practiced architecture for three years, and said, I don't like this anymore. And one day, just pivoted, totally, you know, switched gears and started a food truck company that is now a thriving, awesome food truck company here in San Diego. And I just remember being like, whoa, you just jumped. You know, how did you do that? That's so brave. And I really struggled with jumping because, you know, all the safety nets and and I I needed that, you know, uh, that assurance that I would land, I would land well. And so finally, after my third daughter's birth, I heeded some of my husband's advice. I took the skills that I had been, you know, honing on the marketing side, 
and said, okay, I think I can do this for the crafting space in a really, really unique way. So I built a business plan and I um, came up with how I would pitch the concept of the crafter's box, what artists I would reach out to and so forth. And then I just, I became very brave and I, um, and I jumped and I, I will, I say that uh, with a little bit of, you know, asterisks because I kept my corporate job part-time for probably eight months and I cut back my hours to, you know, 20 hours a week with them and 20 hours a week focusing on building what I was, what I had dreamed up with the crafter's box. Um, but I would have never done that had I not been really encouraged by the people who love me in life to just try, just go and try was the worst thing that happens. You know, it doesn't work and you go back to what you were doing before or, you know, you, you're on to the next adventure. And what need did you see in the market that you were filling? In other words, what was missing in the craft world that you were like, okay, I see uh, an avenue here to build something that's going to fill this sort of gap? There were two defining moments um, that really kind of landed the, made the idea feel very like a good, you know, this idea has legs, I can build on this. Um, the first was, so I'm working for a company up in the Bay Area and I'm flying back and forth probably once a month or every six weeks. And on one of those particular trips, I had all three of my kiddos, my plane, I remember landed at the, like the end of the day on a Thursday and I was gearing up for a weekend project. I decided the project that I was going to work on that coming weekend, you know, with my, you know, if I can set the scene, I have an outdoor table at home. I get my hot cup of coffee while the kids are still sleeping. I have this creative time on a Saturday morning to do something that's just for me. And I really tried to do that back in the day as often as humanly possible. Um, so on a Thursday night, I'm preparing for that Saturday morning and I can smell the coffee and I'm excited for my Saturday morning and I need to make this happen. Um, and I'm at a Michael's or a Joanne's or, or a large craft store in San Diego trying to find the pieces for this like leather and turquoise and gold necklace that I wanted to make that I had seen somewhere before, maybe on Pinterest or something like that. And I was just going to make it myself rather than, than buy it. And, um, I was looking for the right gauge wire and I was looking for the right, you know, this, that, and the other. And the quality of materials, I just, I wasn't landing in a right spot. I couldn't find what I was looking for. I have three little kids about to overturn this cart like at 9 PM in this, you know, craft store. And I was like, man, you know, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so anyway, I basically bought out the jewelry out and was like, I'll return whatever, whatever I don't need. I got to, I got to get out of here. The kids are going to, you know, start tearing little jewelry clips off of the, the wall. Um, of course you never, you never really make all of those returns at a craft store. So I think I probably still have like half of the project or the unused pieces still like in the jewelry area of my crafting space at home. Um, but Saturday morning comes and I set out all of my tools and materials and the gauge of wire keeps snapping and the beads are not the right size for, you know, the different components that I had purchased. And I just remember being so frustrated. Um, so that was like impetus number one of like, man, there's got to be a better way to curate tools and materials for those who are maybe not experts in every single medium, but they know what to buy. They can go in 
to a project knowing that what they have just invested money into will result in the project that they're hoping to make. Um, the second one was that while San Diego is a awesomely creative space and we have artists coming through teaching live workshops on a regular basis, it's, it's not a huge hub of live workshops. And if you miss, you know, there was, there are, there are artists who do sort of like, uh, you know, like book tours, but they're crafting and, you know, they teach, um, they teach how to do oil pastels in 15 different cities over the course of a month. And it's like, if you miss that artist coming to San Diego, you miss the opportunity to learn from them. You miss that, you know, that chance to kind of like schedule time on your calendar and go into a studio space and, you know, learn under the guise of an expert that you've been admiring, you know, through a, a Instagram community or Pinterest community or whatever it might be. Um, and that happened to be a couple of times just because life and kids and, and so forth. I was like, man, there's got to be, what if I could build really beautifully produced video workshops that paired with the tools and materials that these expert artists, professional artists have vetted. So they've been through the experience of all the snapping wire and they've used their years of professionalism to determine the correct tools and materials to actually invest in. And what if we could guide people on the maker journey if they're starting from scratch in a new medium, especially so that that frustration is not an occurrence for them. And that's, that's kind of where the idea started. Um, and I pitched that to probably a dozen artists and said, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to work with you to do this. And the benefit for you is that instead of traveling to those 15 different cities, you get to, um, you get to record a video, a workshop video that you can then release to your entire community. Um, and, um, you know, what do you think of that idea? And, and I had, um, ultimately six artists who said, yes, I'm sure I pitched more than 12. Then I, you know, a lot of artists said, no, that's not for me. Not right now. This was all very new. You know, the idea of, um, of what I was suggesting was pretty new. And, um, but it, I had six artists who said yes. And we tried it out. We filmed six workshops, um, with, uh, basically just me and a, a, a good friend here in San Diego and my, um, my executive assistant, my other job, uh, and the three of us launched with the very first, you know, kit and we had a, an amazing artist lead the way. Marianne Moody was our very first artist. So she naturally brought a really wonderful community of weavers. And then every time we launched with a new artist, they would introduce their community to the crafters box. And that's, that's sort of how it got the ball rolling. Yeah. And I think that that, um, collaboration, right. Cause this is a, this is a business built on collaboration um, so that every time a new month comes, a new collaboration is is released. And so it really helps to, to build the brand and to build brand awareness and brand trust when, you know, you're really partnering basically with all different artists and it just continues to grow. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And there's also, um, I think on the trust side, we've had... We have had customers that have been with us since day one, and that is the value that we hear most frequently through, you know, our feedback channels is that there is this trust that if, if an artist puts their name behind a particular tool or a particular technique, and we put our name behind that same tool and technique, they know that they're, um, 
they're getting the best version of that through through this experience. And that's huge. Like that that is something that, you know, any business would would value a million times over and would work so hard to never ever lose um, that particular trust with its uh, customers. And so what is each um each of these releases include? Obviously, it's including this kit, right, which has the materials to make a specific project. It includes a partnership with the artist who's curated and, and, and told you, okay, these are the materials, these are the tools that need to go into this kit. What else is included? Um, so uh, so the anywhere between usually 30 to 90 minute video um, is sort of what leads each workshop. So you're, you are learning on your own time or with a group of friends, like on a set Tuesday night when you all watch the video together and you stream it on your, you know, your living room TV and everyone has their kits out. Um, so the video is huge. The curated kit of tool and tools and materials. And we, we are really thoughtful in that, you know, if you're just trying out, we'll keep going with the jewelry making analogy. If you're just trying out jewelry making, you don't need to invest in like a, you know, 400 yard spool of gold wire to, to try making, you know, one necklace. You may find that this is, you enjoyed it, you know, for the first time and you're not going to do it again. And, and so, you know, our team, we've like really honed in on the efficiency of, of, um, sending you just what you need. And we have a team here in San Diego that preps every single one of these boxes and breaks down those those bulk purchases so that you only need to buy what you need for your actual, you know, and that's part of the kit, obviously. So it's a very highly curated kit um, of the tools and materials that the artist uh, would like to send along. Um, we have a maker chat at the end of the month that um, where when you're, once you're, once you've done your project, you can get together with the community and jump on a conversation. We have an awesome moderator in house who leads a conversation with the artists and you have the opportunity to ask any questions in a live environment where the artist can go back. Oh, let me show you how to do that stitch again. Or, you know what you learned? I, you know, in my workshop, I taught how to dip taper candles today. Let me teach you a new technique, but it, you know, um, uh, but in a live, you know, in a live space. And that's a lot of fun because that's where you get the community and the chatter and the conversation and you really get to know the artist's personality um, we have a podcast, um, we have, um, a, a community group where a lot of makers share their finished projects or the variations on their finished projects. Um, yeah. And then I'll just add as well as that once that, once that kit comes out of our monthly subscription, it lands in our marketplace, which is where you can just go and peruse you know, through a hundred different workshops and choose, you know, pick and choose what exactly you want to, um, try this, you know, this coming summer or, um, or whatnot, or gift to a friend or so forth. And what about replenishment? So you talked about the gold wire, um, have you sort of figured out a way, you know, if I, I wanted to make more of that one necklace or whatever, is there a way to just, buy the material for that particular, or should I buy the whole, you know, cause the, if you buy the workshop, you're buying the whole thing again. Right. This has been, it's been our vision for a very long time. So we are, we, um, are v very soon to announce that we, um, so through the process over the last seven years of this business, the crafters box has remained kind of the core 
of what we do. It's our sweet spot. It's what we do really, really, really well. In the growth of the space, we're actually um, keeping the Crafters Box as our subscription and building a much larger brand under the umbrella of Crafter. So the domain for that is crafter.com. And the goal, like you mentioned in the introduction um, just a bit ago, is to be the home and hub for makers, to offer community, to offer a really robust marketplace, um, to offer uh, even more digital workshops and digital patterns and to support artists and being able to, you know, post their own content as well for sale. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we're growing into right now. We exist in the, you know, the, the value proposition of workshop kits. So we have, we have extension kits where say you learn to make a, a, a really beautiful gold disc necklace your next project might be our extension kit, which is an anklet or a bracelet, but it is still a kit in some capacity. Um, we do have individual lines of yarn. We work with this amazing mill in Italy, and we're the only um, distributors of this yarn, and they actually custom make it for us. Um, so we do have independent, we have an independent line of woodworking tools like looms and frames and, you know, um, stretchable punch needle frames and um, tools that we have found to be quite difficult to get here in the States as well. Um, but for the most part, we're not quite there yet. The replenishment, the replenishment piece, it would be amazing if that's, um, if that is something that we can, you know, uh, move into pretty soon in terms of like, I think what you mean by like, I want to purchase individual spools of wire or something along that line. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And as far as the tools that are included and the materials that are included, I mean, you talked about shopping in this big box craft store and being somewhat disappointed with some of the quality. But when, you know, when you're an artist who, like Marianne Moody, who focuses entirely on weaving, you, as as you said, like you, you kind of pare down exactly which tools are the best, which materials are the best, but you're an artist. So you're investing <laughs> in sometimes in, in expensive tools and materials, because those are the ones that, you know, truly are the best. When you're creating a kit that's for more of a mass market audience who aren't professional artists, I guess my question is like, how do you figure out how to replicate what Marianne Moody wants, you know, her students to use, but still in a way that is going to be affordable for a first timer. Yeah, that's a good question. And I and we've we've tried to solve that problem in two different ways. The first is um, there's an immediate acknowledgement that some of these crafting mediums cannot be put into the price point of our subscription box. It could, it's just it wouldn't be possible. Um, and uh, and so we launched a, a line of premium workshops um, a couple of years ago. Uh, with the goal of focusing on mediums that that wouldn't fit into our existing model, and that includes, you know, one of our one of my favorite premium workshops is building a soldering studio in your garage to do stained glass art. Um, those are the types of tools and materials you're investing in, not because you think this will be something fun to try once, but because you have an an interest in continuing to make, and you're willing to put in the time and resources to, you know, carve out that little space in your garage to keep going. Um, so that's one way we, we do that so that we're not, so that we're still including the tools and materials that an artist would 
um, would recommend without um, without undervaluing them in any way. Um, the other way that we do that is we we learn how actually to make a lot of those tools and materials in house. So, for example, with Marianne Moody's workshop, we um, this was our very first workshop. So we collaborated with a, a husband and wife woodworking team to build a loom to Marianne specifications. But by overseeing that loom production from start to finish, we were really able to control the price point of it to make sure that it was something that we could put in a kit that ultimately would yield the results that Marianne wanted. It was her stamp of approval, but not something that we were purchasing you know, from a loom, a loom maker that was out there. And actually, we still work with that husband and wife team to this day, and they have a woodworking studio that builds many of the tools that go into our kits. And by being the manufacturer of them and not just a distributor of those tools and materials, we're able to extend a much more appropriate price point than, say, if we were buying from a vendor or distributor. Um, obviously, we can't do that with like um, really high-quality oil paints and that sort of thing. But that's one way that we're able to make sure that some of these kits um, can fit into that price point without um, with really keeping in mind exactly what the artist intends. I think having access, you know, to the artists, like live access, the workshop is pre-recorded, but the live access piece at the end of the month with this maker chat is really brilliant because that's a piece that, you know, you don't necessarily get. I'm thinking of some of the other workshop video, high quality video workshops in the craft space that are out there, such as like Creative Bug, for example, um, you're going to get that beautifully produced video with this project, etc. You're not getting the kit. So that's a difference. But you're also not getting that live access with the maker. Um, so that's kind of like a, you know, I think I think paying for access like that is, is something that is is easy for somebody to say, okay, yeah, sign me up. Yep. And, and that's, um, it's, uh, that is the one missing piece from not participating in a workshop, like going into an artist studio and taking that workshop with the artist is the ability to say, Hey, did I do this right? Or can you tell me more about, you know, X, Y, Z. And that was, I would say, um, uh, when we first launched, that was a hesitancy of a lot of customers or a lot of students just being able to connect with the artist if and when they had a question along the way. Um, so that, yeah, that has been a favorite tool of ours from the very beginning. And why have a podcast? Because I think that, I mean, you're very multi-modality from like a teaching perspective. You've got video um, and then you've got the kit, you know, you've got products um, and then you're also getting audio. So that's kind of interesting. I think a lot of businesses would have skipped that piece, but why did you feel it was important and what is the podcast like? So the podcast from the very, the very beginning, you get you really get to know the artist through their actual workshop video. So once you have purchased the full workshop and you have the kit of tools and materials, you know, laid out across your kitchen table and you're opening, you know, your computer to watch the video, it's a one-on-one experience with the artist and you can pause and you can fast forward and rewind and and really take it and do whatever you would like with that, um, that workshop, ex- you know, close your computer and open it the next day or keep working on a project over a couple of weeks. The podcast is pre-purchase. So before you have that one-on-one experience with the artist, you actually get to learn, um, learn about the artist's inspiration, what their studio space is like, 
a typical day for them. You hear from the artists in their own words what they love about their craft. Um, and we found that especially valuable in the beginning when you weren't really getting access to meeting the artist until you had already purchased the workshop. So it was a great introduction of, you know, do I want to learn about this craft? Do I want to purchase this workshop um, in the artist's own words? And I love that because they really, they get to talk about why they're passionate about what they do. And what are you looking for in an artist when you are, you know, choosing somebody to work with in this collaborative way? Because it's a lot of things that they are doing. They're doing a podcast interview. They're doing a 30 to 90 minute video with you. They're curating the kit. They're doing the maker chat. Maybe there's other things that they're doing as well from a marketing perspective. But um, I'm sure there are listeners to this show who are thinking, oh gosh, I would love this opportunity. You know, what do I need to do um, to be considered for something like this? Oh, that's such a good question. We have a lot of interest from a lot of different artists. Um, and ultimately, just with the size that we are and the resources that we have, we can only launch somewhere between, you know, today, 20 and 30 workshops a year. So we're really thoughtfully thinking about, you know, the calendar lineup of workshops and the variety of mediums and how frequently we're introducing a fiber versus a fine art versus, you know, more of like a, an industrial craft like leather or metal um, and making sure that there's an adequate amount of variety. We love niche crafts that are resurrecting some sort of historical, traditional uh, making technique that maybe has even been lost. Like, um, you know, uh, we worked with Lindsay Campbell to uh, bring pibione weaving, which is this um, a type of weaving that's practiced off of Italy and Sardinia. And with the exception of a few artisans on the island, is not not really known. And that to us was like, oh, this is so cool. We absolutely have to talk about this type of crafting. Um, you mentioned basket weaving at the beginning. That's one of our most popular workshops. We have a variety of different types of basket weaving because it's not something that you can easily and readily find out out there in the world in terms of education and on the workshop side. So niche crafts are amazing. Um, artists that have a comfort level with teaching, that's not, you know, that's not every human being for sure. They really understand how to break down their steps and communicate through film what they're doing. We also have an amazing crew that helps to produce our workshop videos to help the artists with that. Um, we, and, uh, an artist being very on trend. So through their portfolio, whether that's through their, you know, um, what they share through their social media channels or whatnot. Um, but they have, they have captured what people are seeking to make at that time. Um, we really hit it right on the head with, uh, for an example, punch needle when punch needle was brand new and nobody knew what punch needle was. Um, we reached out to Arona uh, Kunaraj, who is just this awesome artist up in um, Toronto, and said, "Hey, we're you know we're really into rug cooking right now and punch needle. Can you build a workshop for us?" And sure enough, when that workshop launched, it was at the height of when everyone wanted to try punch needle. So there's you know there's an art to figuring out what are people exploring right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's not an exact science for sure. Um, sometimes it has to do with schedule and availability. Sometimes it has to do with um, purely with, oh, gosh, when's the last? We can't launch two embroidery workshops, you know, less than six months apart. So we have to pass on working with an incredible artist because, um, you know, we've already allocated two workshops this year to that medium. Um, 
but yeah, that's, yeah, we just kind of, we group together as a team and figure out, okay, what's, what's next and what are the ideal mediums that, you know, we want to explore as a, as a company. And what does um, that team look like right now as far as, um, you know, I'm imagining a warehouse. Um, I think maybe you're, you're there now. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and so because there's, a, there's quite a lot to pick and pack here um, as far as, you know, replenishing all these older kits and then, um, and then also having the new, the new stuff on hand. Um, so there's got to be probably people working in sourcing, I'm imagining. And, and anyway, tell us a little bit about sort of what the, the, the team looks like. Absolutely. So today we're a team of 22 people. Um, that includes our incredible uh, logistics team. Um, we have two warehouse spaces. They're both mixed use. So our offices are at the front of both of those. And we kind of have a shared office space that um, we have had a couple of artists come in and, and local to San Diego artists and put in some really beautiful murals. The goal is to create a creative space where people feel creative within the office environment as well. Um, our two warehouses are divided up by production and fulfillment. So the production team is solely responsible for receiving all of the unique, um, what we call, you know, child SKUs or the the components of a kit, um, and to to manage all of the subassembly. So maybe we're including a yard of like um, a linen flax um, fabric, and they are cutting the fabric and separately, you know, wrapping up each piece of, you know, flax linen and tissue paper and putting it into a kit that also includes maybe block printing supplies. Once those kits are complete, the boxes move from our production to our fulfillment. And our fulfillment is kind of what you would picture like a traditional, you know, um, uh, uh, shelving, you know, units where all of the different workshop kits, workshop extensions, if we sell individual items underneath that workshop, like more frames or more yarn, um, and where the pick and packing and shipping happens. Um, and then we have an office space where, um, a good, a good chunk of our team still works remote, uh, from the, from, you know, re reworking everything during the pandemic. Um, and some of our, but most of our office comes in a couple of days a week so that we can work together in community. Um, and we've got a marketing, you know, a couple of people in each of our teams that involves marketing and procurement, customer service. We have an incredible customer service team. If anybody listening has been um, one of our customers, they've probably interacted with um, Brianna or Molly or Candice, and um, they just knock it out of the park in terms of um, uh, the love they show on our customers. And yeah, it's it's pretty traditional in that um, on that side of things. And was the pandemic, um, I mean, of the kit creators that I've spoken to, the pandemic turned out after a very scary start to be actually really good for business. It was, um, it was, it was a, uh, I can't think of a better word, but other than like a two-edged sword, it was, we probably sold through the inventory that we had on our shelves um, what traditionally would have lasted us an extended period of time, um, maybe in, in like four or five months. And that, that is really awesome. But then the supply side of the pandemic almost shut the business down in the sense that we couldn't re-kit because so many of our kits have 
you know, 30 subcomponent items and right. if we're missing four of them, we can't, or one of them, and it's a key ingredient, we can't rekit that. And many of our workshops to this day are still out of stock because of um, issues related to supply chain, the niche suppliers that do supply us. Um, we've learned a lot in terms of how to, you know, work within a challenging environment where you can't just call up any um, any maker and say, hey, we need, you know, X amount of this in three months because now that's nine months and now that's a, oh, this supplier went out of business and we need to find a new supplier or, or other. So it's been challenging. And all of this sounds expensive um, because it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people. Um, have you sought outside capital or has this been bootstrapped from the beginning? Uh, so I, I bootstrapped it for the first four and a half years. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go through um, a really neat incubator program. Uh, we were chosen as a female founded company out of 800 other female founded companies to incubate um, under the Rent the Runway co-founders. So I had an office in Jenny Fleiss's um, uh, space in New York for a couple of months. And that was a really eye-opening, interesting experience. And then the summer after that, we um, participated in Techstars, which is one of two um, really well-known accelerators um, in the U.S. Techstars is international, um, but uh, that really uh, put a company through um, 12 weeks of programming on how to how to grow and how to kind of step up to the next level from you know a very niche business to uh, growing a much wider audience and offering, you know, much more complex offering on the tech side and so forth. And through that process, we did bring on outside capital. We raised a seed round um, and we have today we have investors. Okay. And as far as the tech side of this, um, you know, you need specific software to be able to run a subscription box effectively. Um, any um, any thoughts to share on what has been sort of helpful to you from the tech side to get this kind of business uh, running smoothly? Anything, I think this is like across all tech landscape, but anytime you can use a software tool out of the box without having to majorly customize it through dev work and so forth, that should be the way that you design your business for at least for at least a while, at least the first few years, or until you hit an inflection point where you can bring on professional developers to maintain a site. Anytime you start to um, customize and you know you build your own tools within the program, um, major website updates, major yeah. plugin updates, and everything you, breaks. <laughs> everything breaks. And you sometimes can't figure out why because you've yep. done too much customization. So, yeah, my word of advice is, um, and we did this for the probably the first five or six years, and then we began to layer on custom tools. But for as long as you can exist in the, hey, this is how WordPress or Shopify or whoever intended this, Magento intended this tool to be used, um, you'll have way fewer headaches. <laughs> yeah, long. yeah, exactly. If you can almost in some ways, build around what is available, maybe having to make some modifications to your uh, initial idea just to make uh, the existing software tools work well in their um, in, the, in, the, in their out-of-the-box form. And I think that's really good, really yep. good advice. Yeah. Um, and that's neat that you were able to do those accelerator programs um, 
Do you recommend that sort of thing to people who are really looking to scale? And at what point? I mean, I think there's probably some people who do this or try to do something like that before launch. Um, but you were four to five years in when you decided to, you know, take on um, capital and investors and do a seed round, etc. Um, and also go through these this incubator program. And so um, I don't know, I guess my question is like, do you recommend people do that? And at what point? Yeah, so I, you have to, you have, it's a very different style of running a business. And I really enjoyed the, um, the lifestyle business that was the crafters box for the first four or five years. Um, we had built an awesome customer community. We worked with incredible artists. We had a small team as soon as we raised capital because we wanted to take on this bigger crafter vision and we realized that there was a desire and a need in the space for, um, a, a home that serviced all of the, all of the needs of the maker, the modern maker, that was when I sought out capital, but you get on a different train in terms of how you run your business and how quickly you're investing in marketing and growth and hiring and so forth. So it really, I mean, it, it just really depends on the founder and their intention for the business. And if what, if, if what you're looking for is, um, is bigger than you can do within your own means, I am all about bootstrapping. I think determining product market fit right. and going through the trenches is like an incredible, you know, value to, you know, being a founder and, and growth. But if you, if you, if you found that and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to figure out how we meet a wider audience, raising capital is a wonderful way to do it, but you will be holding to a, a brand new group of shareholders and yeah. you have to be ready for that. Yeah. It changes the dynamic. It changes the expectation um, and in a lot of different ways. So, okay. That's, I think that's really good advice. And I, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations, Morgan, because you have three really good ones. Um, and actually I think you might have four, so <laughs> we'll get to those now. Um, so the first one is that you are um, making a baby quilt and I'm actually starting a baby quilt right now too. Oh, um, yes. Okay. So on the baby quilt side, this is, this, poor little guy. I have a, I have a five month old. He will be five months tomorrow. <laughs> little, poor little guy. I started this quilt when he was probably a few weeks old. Um, and he will probably get this quilt when he is like, you know, maybe like eight months. <laughs> I was going to say, six, I was going to say 16 years old, but that's fine. <laughs> it, thankfully it's a small one. I'm hand piecing this quilt. So I'm not using a sewing machine at all. I, I am not an experienced quilter, but I do like to hand, hand sew and hand stitch and hand quilt. And, um, and so I've designed this, this really pretty, uh, linen quilt and I will just plug away at it. And each time that we're on, I've been taking it on like little vacation opportunities. So if like we take a drive for a weekend up the coast, like in the car, there I am hand stitching, you know? Um, and that's how I do craft projects these days. I do not get my Saturday mornings with like a hot cup of coffee and a brand new craft project anymore, <laughs> but I do get moments to be able to dive into. And it's, it's, it's a pretty awesome experience to be able to walk into the fulfillment center and be like, okay, let's work with clay this weekend and be able to be able to just dive into a clay workshop, um, 
right away. And, you know, no longer the big hobby stores, but being able to go into my own warehouse space and say, oh, this art, this workshop is going to be so good. I can't wait to try this. But yes, I, um, I'm working on a baby quilt and I can't wait for, hopefully my son will not be too big to use it by the time it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also a wall hanging that you, you're working on, or you just finished, that's 48 inches. Yes. Oh my gosh, I was so proud to get this guy off the loom. It was it was actually I thought it was a beautiful work of art on the loom. I had a 40 our the crafters box has a 48 by 48 inch standing maple uh hardwood maple loom. And I brought it home and I started this project probably like 2 years ago and I just left it halfway done um for for years. <laughs> and when the kids would play in the living room, uh, like on a weekend or something like that, I might like, I might work away at it and I might add like an inch or two here or there. But I finally had, we were, we had like a, a Memorial day, um, party and I was like, I got to get this thing off the loom. And so I had a date that I had, I needed to get it finished by and I completed it. And it's all made out of just ecru or natural white fibers of all different widths. So it's not one of our kits, but it's our, our, our roving or, and our arm knitting yarn, which are really chunky, um, uh, fibers. And then it's got, you know, bulky weight yarn and pencil size yarn and very thin yarn and warp. And I just wove all of those different in one colorway together. And it now hangs on our dining room wall and, um, it's way cool. It looks like maybe, a blanket hanging on the wall and the textures of it are just awesome. And I'm so glad I finally, uh, I finally got it off the loom. <laughs> and you've been going thrifting as well with a friend. Yes. Okay. So this is something that I really dug when I was a lot younger. And then I just didn't have time for any kind of treasure hunting for a very long time. But where my daughters actually go to dance, um, I, when it's my turn to take them to dance on Wednesdays, I have an hour to kill and there's a couple of really great little antique and thrift locations. And I have, I, I didn't realize how much I missed like the art of the hunt. Um, so I highly recommend if you, if you're not a necessarily a, a like a creative person on the art sense that you want to get your hands dirty, um, stop into some place that allows you just to kind of rummage and, and explore. And that will satisfy some of those creative needs in a big way. Oh yeah. I agree with that hundred percent. And then you start your day with a podcast from NPR that's called Up First. Yes. This is um, just in, you know, I also like read a couple of news articles as like part of my wake up routine, which some people are, are super anti and some people are super pro, but it's a way for me to just to start the day with like a, a perspective of what's happening in the world. Um, and I found this, this podcast, which is like 15 minutes long. I listen to it while I'm doing my makeup every morning, um, and brushing my teeth. And I, I just feel like I know a little bit more about what's happening around me. Uh, and that means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you later in the day, like run into somebody and, and they reference something that's gone on in the news and you're like, oh yeah, I, I know something. I have something yeah. to say. It's not, you're not just standing there blank, like what, what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. yeah, I think it's really helpful. Um, so, Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having, having me, Abby. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg.
Today's episode was brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching. If you're curious how virtual teaching can increase your profits in a scalable and manageable way, learn more at the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Creating online educational videos is a lot easier than you think, and you already have most of the equipment you need. In fact, the Academy invites you to join them for a two-week free trial. While you're there, check out the five-day promotional video challenge where they'll teach you to film and edit a short video for your product or workshop using nothing but your phone. Join them at a4vt.com backslash teach. That's a, the number four, vt.com slash teach. Come join the fun and become part of the Academy for Virtual Teaching supportive community of creative entrepreneurial educators. Thank you so much, the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.